afternoon. Welcome to Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise, KRBX, um, 89.9. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get it. We'll get we it. Are. I'm a little out of like practice on this. <laughs> I'm your host, Jackie Kettler. I'm here with my co-hosts, Charlie Hunt and Jen Schneider. And we're really excited today to have Seth Ashley with us, who's an associate professor of journalism and media studies in the Department of Communication and Media at Boise State University. Thanks so much for joining us, Seth. Hooray. Thanks for having me. I am Seth. I'm, this is Jen Schneider. I'm a co-host of Jackie's and Charlie's, and I am super excited to have you here to talk about your book, News Literacy and Democracy. The reason I, I love Me this too. book. Let's sell some books. Yeah, let's sell some books. <laughs> They're on Amazon. It's by Rutledge. Check it out. Um, the reason I love this book is it solved a problem for me. <laughs> a problem one of my many problems that I have it solved for me and that was that in my training like coming up through my PhD I had been taught to be really suspicious of media right like I had my backgrounds in cultural studies and I was taught like these are big multinational corporations there's all sorts of spin ideology and then along came fake news and sort of the Trump era. And my I found myself in the position of having to defend media and defend journalism. And I couldn't sort of make those two things square in my mind. And your book helped me to do that. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. So I, can- I have the exact same problem. You said it just right. So uh, <laughs> I, d- I don't know that I figured it out for myself either. But um, it's it's a hard position to be in when you know you want to defend this thing that you, you know we need for a democratic life. But it has flaws, too, and you want to be able to critique it. And I'm talking about the real the real stuff, the, the important work that real journalists do. Um, so we have to have a space where we can still be critical of, of that work, important as it is. Um, but, but that's, of course, separate from the problem of false information, disinformation, which is of no value whatsoever. And we should you know, work to eliminate. Can I follow up with a question? You said real journalist. So what does that mean? That's a good question, because that's, you know, that we could talk about that all the whole the whole day, the whole show here, but um, sure. I mean, I think certainly there's a role a role for citizen journalism. There's a role for people who are you know on Radio Boise or you know just producing their own blog. You know that's that stuff is important. The the social media tools that we have, but but nothing can replace the institutions where we have people who get paid salaries and make a living by gathering and and synthesizing and sharing information and um, you know when that as as especially as we've already seen that declining in a lot of ways and and even disappearing in some areas um, that has real consequences and um, you know some of the interesting findings so far is are, are, like fewer people run for office and um, people are more polarized and they're more likely to believe fake news and you know so so we've already seen serious consequences of that so so I'm all for you know I, I definitely want to that's another kind of like tricky situation like you described Jen where you know certainly you want to make space for uh, non-professionals to be to to play a role in our media system but but we also have to figure out a way to s- support an institutional press and and you know having having a profit motive is it, it certainly raises questions and we should watch out for that that doesn't mean we should just toss all of that aside right we still have to have to find ways to um, recognize that some people do perform a public service even while making money um, but then there are other outlets that are non you know nonprofit and independent and nonpartisan and you know um, they uh, they're the they're the ones that I think we need to 
beef up and and do do a much better job of supporting the U.S. is is uh, you know notoriously bad about supporting public media um, compared to virtually every other Western democracy. You have this amazing statistic in your book that says that um, I think it's according to Freedom House, the United States is like. 33rd most free in the world when it comes to having a free press. Tied for 33rd. Tied, yeah, yeah we're not even yeah. 33rd people. Get it together. So we're tied for 33rd. That's a shocking thing for people who I think associate American identity and the American way of doing things with having a free and robust press. So what what gives us that ranking and what does that say about sort of the state of American democracy yeah, and there's, information? There's lots of ways to measure that kind of thing. Freedom House ranks all the, all the con- various countries on legal, political, and economic uh, freedom criteria. And so um, and the U.S. is pretty good legally. I mean, we have a First Amendment, which is like no other country, and that, that provides really strong protections, with some exceptions. Um, but uh, but politically, especially under the Trump administration, um, there have been a number of problems, and, uh, and economically, because of all the concentration and the lack of support for public media, um, we take a hit there as well. So, and I so, should know. So, are we talking should, about threats against that, journalists? Is that what That's the only part of it in yeah. the political okay. environment. Yeah, okay. I mean, I should note too. It's, it was an issue under Obama as well. I mean, because they were pretty bad about transparency, and and they did make it harder for journalists to access um, records in some cases. Um, so a lot of a lot of journalists were not happy under under the Obama administration either. But but certainly it's gotten much worse under the Trump administration, where now we're talking physical threats and you know bodily harm kind of stuff, which is that's the stuff of you know the countries that don't rank among the most free at all. I mean, that's the kind of intimidation that you expect. In, in some of the uh, less developed countries in the world. Well, and I think when you when you think about sort of the traditional connection between something like the White House and journalists, you think of things like the Daily Press briefing, and they you know they had them for a while. You had Sarah Huckabee Sanders up there, and now they just they're not doing them at all. And it seems more and more like the uh, you know the role of the press secretary is a little more a little less to be sort of a you know, a, a give and take with the press and more of purely adversarial. I mean, is th- that's that's been sort of an interesting develop in, development in the Trump administration. I wonder if you think that 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 has any real effects or if the bigger threat is more in terms of the issues of bodily harm or of obtaining records or things like that. I think it's all of the above. I mean, th- you know, it's, there's a healthy adversarial relationship to be had between uh, politicians and the press, and that's kind of always been the case. And it's not great when actually when they get too cozy with each other, um, you know, the, the White House press uh, correspondent dinner has always kind of baffled me, like the way that they get on stage and like do sketches together. Like, that just seems weird when when those are the people that you're supposed to be be keeping a watchful eye on. So um, but but yeah, there, then there's, you know, a whole other level of um, what goes on that that is not good. <laughs> Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Seth, I'm hoping that you can help us unpack this complex thing that is now fake news. Um, So stay tuned. You're listening to Big Tent Radio. Hey, this is Nick from Chick Chick Chick, and you're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell Boise, community radio for Boise and beyond. Welcome back to Big Tent Radio. I'm Jackie Kettler here with my co-hosts Charlie Hunt and Jen Schneider and our guest Seth Ashley. And you just you wrote this new book, News Literacy and Democracy, just came out. What was kind of the goal of writing this book? Oh man, I wanted to, you know, kind of figure this stuff out for myself and, and answer my own questions about, um, wh- you know, where we are and what it all means and 
uh, I don't think I necessarily succeeded, but I at least uh, gave it a, gave it a stab. <laughs> oh, I think you've succeeded. <laughs> yeah, you have this amazing moment in the book where I was just like, "Hallelujah," where you make this point about fake news. You say, "Sure, there there is news that is totally fabricated and that is sort of no connection to reality or fact." But newspapers and journalists can make errors, they can make mistakes, and that does not make them fake news. So the New York Times might get a fact wrong, but then they run a retraction or they run a correction, or maybe they get a whole whole coverage of a whole issue wrong. You, you talk about the Iraq war. That does not make them fake news. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how you, how you pull the part the various strings of what fake news is right and and that's different from how some people talk about it right um but i have a, there's a moment where i did i was doing a fettuccine forum in town uh, a couple of years ago and a, a probably a student a young person asked um you know so so when the new york times got got several things wrong about the iraq war um run up you know does that make them fake news and and my answer is firmly no i mean and, and some people might not like that but I, I really think that we have to separate that even though that was they made some grave mistakes in coverage, and they really failed to, to challenge the administration's case and and examine the evidence. Um, and they and they helped support the case for you know a, a war that was based on false pretenses. Um, it, that doesn't mean that they were they set out to mislead or deceive. I don't think that was their goal. I think they were they were doing the the best they could in a difficult climate. And so uh, so we should you know criticize them for that and and help them do better in the future. But we can't toss that out. And, and, you know, with everything else, like, you know, Pope endorses Trump, that kind of stuff. I mean, you also make what feels like a, a bold claim now. Or, uh, <laughs> so bizarre to say that. But the uh, a bold claim that most sort of mainstream news sources are really not partisan, even though we might think they are. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, the the. A lot of the sociology of news is is about how what really affects what how, what news coverage looks like is the routines of daily life for, for most news reporters and journalists and um, whether they're print or TV or digital or whatever I mean they're 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 trying to get the job done you know as best they can and it's not like f- for most of them they're not out to grind an axe I I, I believe and they you know but they're they're affected by the daily pressures of you know getting you know i i was a, i was a newspaper reporter for a while and just getting 15 inches of story done by the end of the day that's they call it the daily miracle for a reason it's <laughs> it really is amazing when you especially when you work in that environment i mean my students who who work at the arbiter they um that's our campus newspaper at boise state they um you know they're they're kind of like baffled by how intense it is and how much goes into producing just a little college newspaper i mean let alone a big you know big national paper or whatever so and um it's just uh it's it's a lot of work and and so uh i think uh, that's that you have to account for that i think it's interesting right we are part people are partisan and then they read the news through a partisan lens and so they i mean research suggests that people kind of separate out right and find things that support what they they like or if it does if the news doesn't support their previous or their views then they just kind of reject it which then makes it hard for people to get people to actually engage with with the story yeah, indeed. I mean, confirmation bias is a huge problem. Select, selective exposure. I, there's two really interesting things that have some kind of challenged my thinking on this stuff. Uh, and and one is related to that. Um, this idea that people exist in these filter bubbles online, that we go online and we just get our, our preconceived notions about the world confirmed. Um, that's certainly true for some people. Those people are probably already set in their ways anyway, and it doesn't matter as much. Most people are not. Most The, the research so far suggests that people really are tuned into a broad array of, uh, of content, especially when you go online. I mean, that's the, I think 
thinking about that compared to someone who watches who watches cable news for three hours every night i mean that's a that's a bubble so going online people actually might get a more diverse uh body of information um so so i don't want to you know, I think people have been uh, overcritical of, of uh, filter bubbles. We should still watch out for confirmation bias and the role that algorithms play in dictating what we see when we go online. But um, but that's uh, that's something we have to be kind of nuanced about as we as we figure it out. I mean, I think another concern that people have about you know getting news getting news online or at least getting information online is you know maybe how much easier it is for you know, really harmful conspiracy theories, sort of more out there stuff to to pop up and kind of and kind of bubble up. Do do you see kind of evidence of that, or that social media is playing a particularly harmful role there, or or you know, how do you how do you see those kinds of things, like you know, really more extreme and harmful conspiracy theories? Yeah, I think it you know it depends. Um, certainly, some people are are more taken in by that stuff than others, and I think it affects one side of the political spectrum more than more than the other. Um, so, uh, so that's all stuff to watch out for. Um, yeah, I mean, I think about the case of like Dylan Roof, who, you know, killed nine African Americans in a church in South Carolina a couple years ago, cause, cause he got online and started Googling about black on white crime, which is not really a thing compared to just most crime is committed by people of the same race. And so, you know, and the, the Trayvon Martin thing kind of set him down that path. So, and he, he was not a racist kid and he was not someone who was, you know, predestined for this. So. Um, so that's definitely happening and, and we have to uh, be vigilant about that, especially with our young people who, who don't know what they're doing online. I mean, that's one of the things I, again, I really love about, people. I apparently really love your book. So, you know, news, Thanks, liter- news literacy and democracy, make sure to check it out, um, is that you talk both about sort of psychology and our own personal responsibility for our news consumption habits. And you also talk sort of about political economy. So you mentioned algorithms. Um, And so what responsibility do you think big media companies have when it comes to allowing conspiracy theories, for example, to circulate or in the case of Facebook, for example, putting up uh, political campaigns that contain lies? It's hard. I'll start there because, um, you know, especially in the private realm, people can, you know, Mark Zuckerberg can do what he wants. They can set their own policies. Um, the First Amendment does not apply uh, in that in that regard. Um, you know, uh, they can they can censor whatever they want, but they've they've been so reluctant to accept that they are, in fact, a media publisher. I mean, they still say that they're mostly a technology company. And that's that's a huge problem. They need to embrace their role as a publisher. You know, when 70 percent of people are saying they get information there and news and news from from Facebook and other Social sites that you know people uh, the, the people that run those have to take some responsibility for, um, for for what they're doing there and in the same way that you know newspapers had to you know they weren't they weren't uh, newspapers weren't terribly serious about their public service role um, until the threat of regulation came along and then they were like oh no no don't regulate us we'll be good and uh, and and that's kind of where we are with social media right now so we're we're waiting to see if they're gonna be good or if the government will step in. Well, and especially because you have these, you know, you have a lot of the discussion lately has been around political ads and, you know, should should Facebook be monitoring political ads for whether, you know, how truthful they are. And and, you know, it's not a responsibility I envy, you know, for them coming up with a policy like that. And then you have, you know, Twitter, for example, recently decided that they weren't they were just going to scrap political ads altogether and decide that that wasn't going to be, you know, a profit center for them. I mean, do you think the answer is more in, you know, those sites kind of stepping away from that responsibility or sort of, you know, 
being honest and diving in, you know, head first. I would just say this, you know, at least on TV, uh, I mean, they, they make a lot of money off of political advertising, issue advertising and candidate advertising. And, um, you know, they figured out a way to, to sort the good from the bad and say, look, this is not acceptable. We're not going to run this on the air. And some have already done that with, uh, with some of this, the, the uh, ads that have already been put forth. So, um, you know, they can do that on, online in the same way. And uh, they just have to accept that that responsibility. The Twitter thing is interesting because, I mean, yes, they've been candidate ads, but that doesn't exclude issue ads, and and that does mean that you know people can still um, take advantage of uh, you know there, there's just there's no easy solution here um, other than to to get in there and say we're going to accept some responsibility for the content that we're putting out in the world. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Seth Ashley about his book, News Literacy and Democracy. And in particular, uh, we'll hear about some behaviors that we might engage in to improve our own news literacy and consumption behaviors. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Scott from Local H, and you're listening to KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise, Radio Boise. Bye. Welcome back to Big Tent Radio on Radio Boise. I'm Jackie Kettler. I'm here with Charlie Hunt and Jen Schneider, all of us at the School of Public Service at Boise State University. And our guest today is Dr. Seth Ashley, also with Boise State University. Um, and we've been talking about your new book, News Literacy and Democracy, Seth. But I think maybe we overlooked what news literacy is. So can you help explain that for our listeners? I'd love to, yeah. I think... Um you know, I think maybe people can just kind of intuitively understand what what that what that means. But um, I see it as part of the broader umbrella of media literacy. So so we're focusing more narrowly just on news um, as opposed to entertainment media and advertising and other kinds of media. Um, and it, it really is a, a body of knowledge that I think people need in order to uh, be good critical consumers of, of news and information. And so um, and I separate that a little bit from the ability to check facts and verify information and spot hoaxes online. I mean, those are all good outcomes of being news literate. But, um, but people really, I think, need to know if we're going to have a, a functional democracy, people need to know some stuff about how our news system works and um, you know, where their information is coming from, how it's made, uh, who's behind the production process, what, uh, what goes into all of that. And then, you know, how they're involved in the consumption of it and, um, you know, what the role that they can play in, um, in you know, making it work for them and meet their goals as, as uh, individuals and as members of a society. One of the uh, moments I love in your book is when you describe news literacy as critical autonomy, right? The ability to sort of um, have some say in how you understand, consume, and then share media. So you, you do give information about how to identify fake news, which is helpful. But I think a lot of media literacy efforts kind of stop there. And you go beyond to address the things you just talked about, like, what are the sort of business interests in how news gets made? Um, How do these systems function with one another and with politics? What kinds of cognitive biases do we bring? And then how can we responsibly share information with each other in a way that sort of promotes democracy and that critical autonomy. So maybe could you talk a little bit about some of the practical advice you give towards the end of the book about how we how to consume and share news in a sort of informed way? Yeah, I, I always shy away from telling people like this is what you must consume. Uh, I, th- I want people to figure that out for themselves based on the the knowledge that, that I think you need to do that. So um, so so it's hard to just kind of sum up. Um, 
but but I think you know um, learning as much as you can about about who's producing information, where it's coming from, uh, the routines that go in, how it's made, um, and then you know being as active and engaged as possible in what's going on in the world, but also um, your role in in digging through that information and um, being really deliberate about where you're getting it and you know kind of who you're letting into your brain that that idea of critical autonomy i mean it's like it, it goes back to the whole like ancient greeks talked about human flourishing i mean it really is like being fully human is uh it, you can't do that if if you're if your you know brain is uh if you're just letting anybody any anyone in to to you know kind of influence you in any way uh that they like so that and it's not out to, that's not to say that everybody's out to get you and there you know everyone's trying to manipulate you there is some of that but um but it's about uh, you know avoiding that stuff and finding your way to the the stuff that can that can help you uh, you know achieve your goals when you're trying to learn stuff about the world. I kind of think that is one benefit of the Trump era is that it's forced me anyway to be much more conscious and much more deliberate about my consumption and sharing practices, like just even kind of little dumb stuff like checking the date on a piece and oh, is the first emotion I feel at reading this outrage? Well, I maybe better double check where it's from and what the motivation is here. Um, and That's probably am the I... best piece of advice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if it, if it makes you feel a strong emotion, uh, there's a good chance it was put there with that, with that in mind and that you should just wait, you know, slow down and just take your time before you react. And I will say sometimes with online, like even with reading like the New York Times or something, it can you have to like really be careful what's opinion, what's being published in the opinion section and what's not. So, and so taking a little, you know, second to check, well, what section is this from? Another way to kind of help uh, navigate some of those. And, and people have never really understood the difference between a news section and an opinion section and like why, why newspapers endorse candidates for office, that kind of thing. That's always confused people, even when it was like clearly separated in a physical product. And now it's just all there in your newsfeed. And so, yeah, it's harder than ever to, to go through all of that. But yeah, that's what, that's what people have to do if they want to if they want to do, you know, separate that stuff out. But I think we can also make it easier for them by working on the the news environment, and um, and that means the digital companies that that control all that stuff, the news producers that are putting content out there, everybody everybody has a role to play. So I don't want to shift topics a ton, but we have a new theme song for the show, and. Seth, you had something to do with that theme song, which we really want to thank you about because it's your band that recorded it. It sure is. And wrote it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for using it. I hope you like it. That's oh. fantastic. And your band name is? Flack and the Enforcers. Flack and the Enforcers. And I don't know if I've asked you this, but does is Flack come from Noam Chomsky's work? That's exactly work? where it comes from, yeah. Oh, yeah that's manufacturing the, the fourth consent. filter and the propaganda model, yeah. And uh, it just it always just seemed like a good band name, and so... Yeah, so it's fantastic. It yeah. What a beautiful tie-in. And having seen Flack and the Enforcers live, I can tell you they are they are a sight to see and an excellent band that you should check out. Good to hear. Thanks. I mean, full disclosure, my dude is the drummer. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I should say that. But we know it it takes a lot of effort to I mean, but is it so is music like an alter you know, you're you're an academic, you work at Boise State, is music the other kind of thing that you spend time on definitely yeah i like to be able to do a lot of different things uh that's what this work affords i think so uh yeah i, I like to do as much music as i have time for maybe in the few minutes we have remaining seth i mean music's a bright spot for a lot of us um 
you know, the land, the media landscape sort of feels depressing sometimes Indeed. because of our current political moment and sort of what's happening at, to local news. Do you see, you work with students at Boise State, do you see bright spots moving forward when we think about news and, and our media landscape? I do. I, to your point earlier, the, I think the silver lining in all of this is the awareness, right? And that's, um, you know, this was... When I started the, down this path, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, uh, you know, people were like, why do you want to study that? You know, and it's kind of now it's like, no, you don't have to explain to people anymore why it's important. And so um, so so that's the silver lining that, that, that there's definitely awareness and people just kind of understand that this is important stuff. Um, so uh, so, yeah, that's the good news. And I tell students too, you know, don't let people ruin this for you by, you know, because you watch a bunch of cable news and you're, you, you can't figure out what's true and you don't feel like you can trust any, you know, don't don't let uh don't let all that stuff get you down. There's there's a, a good path forward, and, and we can actually like enjoy the process of like you know figuring out what's true and, and come working together to achieve uh, you know good good goals for our uh, our societies. Well, I think that's the beauty of of sort of how we choose our news. Like it, in a lot of ways, it is something that's you know what's going on in Washington and all of that stuff can feel like it's not in our control or like we don't they, there's no accountability there and things like that. And people have a lot of frustration around that, but we can control the information we take in and and how we choose to, you know, what we choose to do with that information. It's like, again, it's that autonomy that, that can feel can feel really good and empowering when we sort of take it in a positive light, I think. And so many students uh, are, I find that they're just, they're, they're not, it's not that they're disengaged, they're just like, they haven't been invited to the conversation, really. <laughs> and so they, when, when I do start talking about anything political in class, they're just, they're, their heads go down, you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but they're, well, you're, maybe your fields are different, but, um, but, you know, and so you really do have to invite them into this conversation to say, look, this this is just these are just interesting questions about how we want to organize our society and and who should be allowed to do what and where we draw lines between different competing interests you know and i think when you when you put it in those terms it, it's not so daunting and it do, and it doesn't have to be so ugly and divisive it's just like you know people are always going to have different ideas about this stuff and we just have to come to some compromises that we can all live with I mean, that's my big takeaway is that I can continue to love journalists and sort of be a journalist junkie and maintain a critical posture when it comes to me.